We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recast at the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with my co-host Brittany Eklund. Um, on today's episode, we are talking with geologist Dr. Aaron Walton. Dr. Walton is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Sciences at McEwen University and an adjunct professor at the Universities of Alberta and New Brunswick. Her primary research focuses on shock metamorphism recorded in Martian meteorites. Over the past few years, this research has grown and evolved to encompass terrestrial impact structures and meteorites from our moon and the asteroid for Vesta. That sounds all very cool. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, first we'd love to hear a little bit more about you and what attracted you to the science and geology and planetary sciences in particular. Right. Well, um, I grew up in New Brunswick uh, and I think like most people, when I started university, I didn't have um, a great awareness of the different, all of the different types of careers that were out there for specifically for women in science. And so um, when I started my degree at the University of New Brunswick, I was doing a double major in biology and psychology, mostly because I knew I liked biology. I thought maybe I like animals too. Maybe I'll be a veterinarian. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to explore what was out there in the arts. Um, and I hadn't had the opportunity to learn about earth sciences up to that point. Um, there weren't any courses in my high school. And so as my science elective, I took a first year earth science course, um, really similar to the types of courses that I teach here at McEwen. And when I took that course, I learned all about how our solar system formed, how it evolved, how we learn about our solar system. I learned about why certain regions on the Earth are volcanically active. I learned about plate tectonics, about the recycling of the crust in our oceans. And I was just completely blown away that I had lived my life up to that <laughs> point and not known kind of how the Earth actually worked and our, you know, our place in our solar system. And so I switched my major after taking that uh, one course. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're kind of like a jack of all trades. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about meteoritics. Yes. Is that how you say that? Meteoritics, yes. Amazing. So uh, can you tell us and tell me exactly um, what that might encompass? Sure. So uh, meteoritics, not meteorology, that's the study of weather. Um, right. Meteoritics is a science that deals with uh, meteoroids, meteors, and meteorites. So there's, there's a lot of jargon in there. <laughs> um, and so I'm technically a meteoriticist. Uh, so meteoroids are basically just chunks of rock that orbit around the sun, just like, you know, the Earth and the other planets. Yeah. I was uh, like, hey, that sounds familiar. I think we're on a giant rock that orbits around the yeah, sun. But meteoroids are small. Okay. They're small rocks that have are pieces broken off from moons and planets and asteroids. And some of those rocks get swept up by the Earth. And when they transit through our atmosphere... They heat up by friction. They also heat the air around them by compressing it, and so they give off light. And so those streaks of light, when the rocks are coming to our, in through our atmosphere, are called meteors. So uh, some people call them um, shooting stars, but they actually have nothing to do with stars. They're just rocks coming through our <laughs> atmosphere. Um, and if those chunks of rock 
survive that transit through our atmosphere, we can collect them to study, and those collected rocks are called meteorites. So I study meteoroids that have come through our atmosphere and landed as chunks of rocks. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of like the life cycle of of the meteors, I guess. That's becoming the life cycle. a meteorite. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd like to know what particularly about meteorites. Like, how have you come to focus on this one very specific kind of rock and its cycle into our atmosphere? Right. Um, well, like my path to geology, it wasn't straightforward. I mean, I wasn't someone who was always interested in, you know, astronomy and thinking about, you know, the Earth's position within space. And so basically, I was just at the right place at the right time. Um, at the University of New Brunswick in 2001, the it's called PASC, so that's an acronym for the Planetary and Space Science Centre was created. And so this was basically a centre that was charged with um, fostering a group of scientists and engineers that were working on astro-materials, so just basically materials not from the Earth, and also on like space-related technologies. And so that was being created right when I was finishing my undergrad. And uh, one of my professors, Dr. John Spray, he was director of the Planetary and Space Science Center. And um, he sort of picked me out as someone who I was quite keen, but not about all aspects of geology. I wasn't so much into like field work and, um, you know, that type of geology. I was really interested in microscopy. So taking... And what's, sorry, what's that? Right. So just using microscopes to study rocks. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And so you can take a rock, you can slice it really thin, thin enough so that light is transmitted through it. And then you can look at how light interacts with the minerals in the rock to, um, I guess, describe, describe the rock that identify the minerals within it, um, describe their textures. And from that information, you can get a history for how the rock formed. And so he, he kind of um, singled me out as someone who was very keen about microscopy. And he thought, well, maybe we can apply that love of microscopes to the study of meteorites under the umbrella of PASC. And so that's how I segued into, originally I started um, in the, as a master's student, and then I progressed into a, a PhD. So I didn't do two separate degrees. I just did one PhD. Okay. Amazing. Now you're here. <laughs> and, now, and, now, and now here I am. <laughs> so you, you've you worked with and collaborated with the Canadian Space Agency. Yes. Is that like Canada's NASA? That's Canada's NASA. That's Canada's yes. NASA. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your project that underway that's focused on creating uh, an expertise in lunar geology. Sure. Yeah. Um, and like, if for example, I guess you could tell us a bit about your role and how uh, your work interacts with a larger project. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, I've been involved with the Canadian Space Agency for quite a while. They've supported my research um, through funding. Ever since graduate studies, they also had funding for my postdoc, which is what brought me here to Alberta in the first place. Um, I did my postdoc at the University of Alberta. And now we have funding from the Canadian Space Agency through their LEAP program. So that's Lunar Exploration Accelerator Program. And so we submitted an application. There's um, a number of us, and I'm a co-investigator on this grant. And we're charged with building um, a network of planetary scientists across Canada. And so it's a 
a project that will go on for the next five years. And most of that funding is used to support students. Um, and so we support them through their salary. Um, we use funding to pay for them to attend conferences, to attend workshops, but also to travel within the different collaborating institutions so that those students can um, have access to you know, different instruments, and then the different expertise within the groups. So I'm someone within the group who studies uh, lunar meteorites using microscopes, um, but we also have people who work on lunar analogs. So that's where we have environments on Earth that are sort of similar to the moon. Um, like and where? so <laughs> yeah, can I, is there zero gravity on earth? <laughs> yeah, no zero gravity, but we have, um, rocks in Canada called anorthosites, um, that are very similar to one of the main rock types on the moon. Um, and so you can go interact with those rocks. Actually, some of the Apollo astronauts did some field work in, in Canada working on this anorthosite rock type. Where in Canada? Um, it's in sort of Quebec, Labrador. Okay, mm -hmm. I was like, can I the do area a day 51 trip? of Canada, yeah. obviously. <laughs> remote remote locations um, yeah. and also impact craters. So I talked about meteoroids, which are small chunks of rock that get swept up the earth, but larger chunks of rock are called asteroids. And when these larger, like meter, kilometer size rocks get swept up by the earth, they don't get slowed down by our atmosphere. So they're traveling really, really fast when they hit the ground. And when they hit the ground, they stop and they transfer all that kinetic energy, that energy of motion to, to the earth. And what that does is it excavates a hole that we call an impact crater. So when you look up at the night sky at the moon, you can see all of these large circular basins and circular holes. So those are all impact craters, or if they're larger, we just call them impact basins. And so we have quite a few impact craters in Canada that we can study as an analog for um, lunar conditions. And then lastly, we also have people in the group who are um, experts in remote sensing. And so they take uh, data from satellites that orbit the moon and they look at that data and they uh, sort of decipher it into what it means in terms of like the minerals that make up the, the moon's surface. I just read something in passing while sc okay. doom scrolling online, <laughs> and uh, it was like the, the you know there's people that are trying to harvest minerals from the moon now mm -hmm. because there's such a, a abundance of them. But I read an article saying that there's like an actual structure in the underneath the surface of the moon that is like millions of tons uh, worth of of like metals and stuff like that that they're trying to like get rights to harvest right to mine yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course yeah <laughs> and they're, they're also interested in there's water ice on the moon and so if we were to establish a permanent base which russia china and the united states all have plans to establish a more permanent presence on the moon we would look at harvesting that um, water ice purifying it for drinking water but then also breaking it down into hydrogen for fuel and oxygen for breathing wow, wow we yeah. already got plans for the moon okay we got plans for the moon <laughs> we're done here <laughs> up to the moon um just before we move on to some of your other research i'm kind of interested about the canadian space agency and um like this project is focused on again creating an expertise in lunar geology in canada I'm just wondering about how this program and the Canadian Space Agency kind of compare to other agencies like NASA in the States and why we would want to establish um, this expertise. Like, what does that mean for Canadians or Canadian geologists or 
Canada. Right. <laughs> um, well, I'd say the Canadian Space Agency is quite um, a bit smaller compared to a large, more well-funded agency like NASA. Um, but we do have expertise in Canada in the space industry. You know, it, it's more concentrated in Ontario and Quebec. Um, but there's then, also a lot of collaboration with other other yes. other parties as well, from my understanding. Yeah, with the European Space Agency and also with NASA. Yeah. And so, you know, I just spoke a little bit about um, plans to establish, to send astronauts back to the moon, um, to establish a base there. And now I'm not as familiar with plans by Russia and China as I am with NASA, but NASA, it's called the um, Artemis Project or the Artemis Mission. And um, from that information that's gained by establishing a base on the moon, that would be used to eventually send astronauts to Mars, that being kind of the longer term um, Just goal. Just build these little, like, little stepping stone station type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, we need to first, you know, learn how students, or students, sorry, astronauts, <laughs> Um, I guess they went, were students once, but, yeah. you know, how to survive in this low gravity environment, you know, how to harvest resources like minerals and like water ice to, you know, sustain them long term and then take that information and relay it to Mars. And it's so, I'm saying it kind of deadpan, but it's so, it's so exciting to yeah. think it's about. It's a lot bigger than, um, <laughs> than Yeah. Think. And so I think, you know, Canada wants to be involved in this endeavor. And in order to be involved, we need to have an, we need to foster that expertise here. Um, from a science point of view, we, there's other reasons why we, why we study the moon. And I think the most simple way of explaining it is that, you know, when I was talking about the Earth and how I was first learning about how the Earth formed or, and evolved and about how we have volcanoes on Earth and plate tectonics. So what all these processes do is they constantly recycle the Earth's crust. And so we don't have rocks on the Earth's surface for geologists to study that span the whole 4.5 billion years of Earth history. But the moon does, right? The moon doesn't have this plate tectonic cycle. And so the surface of the moon tells us about near-Earth space from the time the moon was created to present day. And so from a scientific point of view, that's more Pretty simply, huge, yeah. that's why we study the moon, right? It was around when life was forming and evolving on the earth and it records that period of time that we don't that we have a very incomplete picture of here little known fact both dylan and i are crazy about vietnamese food and luckily there's a saigon taste right across the street from our studio vermicelli bowls and iced coffees have fueled many a podcast and they can fuel your next project too if you're on campus or downtown we highly recommend you swing by and show support for local kick-ass food. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, so, Aaron, let's talk a little bit about the Steen River Project. Can you tell us a little bit about this work? Sure. Well, uh, Steen River is one of the impact craters that we have in Alberta. It's in the northwestern part of the province, um, really close to the border that we share with the Northwest Territories. It's a buried crater, so you can't actually go like drive to Steen River and, and actually see the crater structure. It's actually buried beneath, you know, a couple hundred meters of other types of rock. Oh, no way. Uh, yes. And so we study it through um, core. So because there's a lot of oil and gas activity in Alberta, 
um, there is a lot of core that's taken, and core is a way of studying um, the structure of the rocks beneath our feet. And so all of the core that's collected for oil and gas exploration in the province has to be made available to people to look at. And so we have two of these core research facilities. There's one in Calgary, and then there's one here, the MCRF in Edmonton. And so core that was drilled from Steen River in the early 2000s was here in Edmonton, and there's sort of kilometers of rocks that show um, sort of a, a profile through this structure and no one had really looked at them before they just kind of said oh there's not you know I think originally they drilled the crater because they thought it might be related to kimberlite pipes so kimberlites are a special type of rock that bring diamonds to the earth's surface oh and so um, <laughs> money yeah <laughs> money yes uh and so when they didn't find diamonds I think they didn't find the core very interesting um there is oil and gas activity in this structure but it's it's around the rim so just for for a sense of scale the diameter of this crater from the rim to rim if you can imagine like a raised rim and then a bowl and then there's actually sort of like a, a hill in the middle and so rim to rim the diameter is about 25 kilometers no way that's yeah. huge I yeah. cannot imagine something like that being created today like that to me like it, that would take out our city yeah, <laughs> yeah it would, yeah, like it would how, be pretty devastating how large would be would that be a meteorite or an asteroid that would be an asteroid and like how yes. big would the asteroid be to make a crater that big um, it would be on the order of a kilometer diameter. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. but the, it varies depending on like what type of asteroid was it because there's different asteroids of different compositions. So if it's mm -hmm. just sort of a rocky asteroid, it could be larger. If it was something stronger, like an iron nickel metal asteroid, then it, it could be smaller and do a lot more damage because that's more of a like a heavier, more coherent type of rock. Okay. But, yeah, so we've a got one this kilometer asteroid. 25 kilometer Crater. buried impact crater yes okay cool yeah so you guys were looking at the core <laughs> yes um and then what um well i found um kind of a unique type of breccia in the core so a breccia is a type of rock that's made when you kind of glue or bind together angular fragments of other rock types and so breccias are common in impact craters because if you can imagine this asteroid coming down and, you know, kind of pulverizing the, the target rocks, excavating the crater. And a lot of the material, some of the material gets ejected. Some of it gets ejected into space. That's actually the mechanism by which meteoroids are delivered to Earth from, from other planetary bodies, right? And so some of the material gets ejected into space, other gets other material gets ejected around the crater, but some of it slumps back in to fill that hole. And so I found this really thick unit. It was about 165 meters thick of breccia, and it was really green. It was actually quite beautiful um, or striking in terms of the way it looked. And I just really wondered why why is it so green? And so whenever we made thin sections, so we just took samples of that core, slice it really thin, um, and again, thin enough so that light can be transmitted through minerals and we study that interaction. What I found is um, a specific mineral called pyroxene and another mineral called garnet. And these are both very rich in calcium. And where I was kind of wondering where did all this calcium 
come from because in the types of rocks or the target rocks that that asteroid hit, there was no garnet and there was no pyroxene. What there was, was a lot of limestone. Ah. So limestone is a rock that's made of almost entirely calcium carbonate. And so the hypothesis was that you had a lot of this, you know, chunks of this limestone broken up by the impact event. These chunks of rock were then incorporated into this breccia as fragments, but the breccia was very hot. And if you take calcium carbonate and you heat it up and you bake it, you will release the carbonate part as CO2 gas, which can then be lost to the atmosphere, and you will leave behind that calcium. And then that calcium went into making all of the pyroxene and garnet that were giving the, the rock this green color. And so this was really significant because it's a mechanism for sort of longer term CO2 release from impact craters through this sort of um, baking, or we call it a sintering process. Okay. Like I've heard of garnet before mm-hmm. and yes. I'm like, what a, that must've been beautiful. It's a beautiful, <laughs> they're, they're very small. They're not gem quality garnets okay. <laughs> and there, there are different compositions, garnet, like iron rich garnet. And you know, this specific type of calcium rich garnet was called grossular, but yeah, okay. they're a beautiful mineral. So the research that you just talked about, this was in 17. 20, yes, Tw- yes. Sorry. 2017. Yeah. <laughs> we can start saying that now. Yeah. We're in the 20s. Yes, like, that's true. Like this is the roaring 20s. Yeah. <laughs> but um, something that's going on now is actually a former student of yours, Haley Jurak, mm-hmm. um, is carrying on this work. So can you kind of talk about how um, your previous article on the Steen River Project and her current work... Um, just kind of the story about it and, and how it interacts. Sure. Well, um, Haley took a course in mineralogy from me. And just like, you know, kind of I was discovered in my mineralogy class in my undergrad, I also discovered that Haley had a real talent for um, describing minerals. And she had an enthusiasm for it. Um, and she did particularly well in the lab component, which is sort of the applied part of the course where you take the theory you learn in the lecture and you apply it to actually um, identifying and describing minerals. And so she did um, some work with me as an undergrad. I saw that she had real potential for research. Um, Like you mentioned, I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta and the University of New Brunswick. And so that means that I can um, supervise graduate students there. And so I asked Haley if she would like to um, move to New Brunswick to start a master's there, looking at trying to test this hypothesis that I have published that all of those calcium-rich minerals formed by the sintering or the baking of limestone in the breccia. And so she said yes, and off she went. And so basically her project is um, in a branch of geology called experimental petrology. So we try and create the conditions that rocks form under in a lab. And so Haley is taking um, the types of rocks that were in the target from Steen River, so limestone, but there's also quite a bit of granite that's buried quite 
quite far below the surface. So she crushed up granite and crushed up limestone. She mixed them together, put them into these little um, platinum crucibles and baked them in a really hot furnace for- Like how hot? Um, so we did <laughs> three batches. So we did 600, 700, 800 degrees Celsius. Wow. So pretty hot. Um, actually, and we did, sorry, we did another, we did four temperature steps. We did a thousand degrees Celsius. Oh also. my. Yeah. <laughs> and so their, their experiments, we call them cook and look. So we weren't really sure what was going to happen. Um, they sintered, so baked in that furnace for six months. We took them out. She prepared them to look at them under a microscope, so embedded them in epoxy, polished them. And what we found is that some of the starting conditions, so we took different amounts of pattern powder. So some had more granite than limestone, some had more limestone than granite. Um, and so we found a particular um, set of conditions. So starting materials and temperature that we were able to make these calcium rich minerals. And one idea we had was what happens if the size of the starting materials is smaller? And so this is where she started doing these experiments that were really kind of pushing the boundaries of experimental petrology to our knowledge of the first of their kind um, that have ever been performed where she's taking nanomaterials. So a nanometer is just a description of a size that's really small. It's a billionth of a, um, a, billionth of a meter. Oh and so she's <laughs> taking nanomaterial size particles and baking those and looking to see if what happens with the reaction reaction rates in the furnace. And so because these particles are so small, they have a really high um, surface area to volume ratio, and that makes them very reactive. So we're looking at how does not only changing the composition of our starting material and the temperature, but changing the size of the starting material, how does that change the dynamics of how these rocks form? I mean, that's really interesting. Um, I have a question about this process that she's using with the nano materials. Mm -hmm. Why is this a rel like why is this a new process? Like why hasn't it been done before? I mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Just when we were looking through the literature, I was like, whoa, I can't believe that people haven't done this before, but I think it's just the the application of like nanomaterials are in a lot of different industries, but we don't work with them a lot in like the geological um, sciences, I guess. I mean, that's got pretty huge implications, mm -hmm. I think, to yeah. be the first go team. Um. Yeah, we are, we're really <laughs> excited. She's going to be, I mean, unfortunately, she's done most of her graduate studies during a pandemic, and so it hasn't been the same interactive experience that it is for most graduate students but um <laughs> yeah so she's done you know presented virtually at conferences which we all know is not the same thing but she's going to be going to her first in-person conference um this summer it's a meeting of the meteoritical society <laughs> um, and it's going to be in glasgow Oh, so, that's very yeah, exciting. Yeah, so we're really excited. She has a, a batch of experiments, the last batch for her thesis. It's coming out of the furnace in April, and then she's going to come back to um, Edmonton, and we're going to characterize those over the summer. I have a quick question. When you say coming out of the furnace, how long are you heating these for? 
Right. Six months. Oh, six okay. Month this isn't just like yeah. an easy bake oven type flash. No. <laughs> this is literally yeah. like in an oven for six months. It's literally in an oven At for a thousand six months. Degrees. Yeah. Does it turn into glass? Like what is like, I know nope. like they heat up sand some, like that's how glass is made, but like, mm-hmm. does the, does it come out different? Yeah. So really it depends like in the higher, highest temperature range, like a thousand degrees Celsius, we will get glass because in order to make a glass, you need melting to happen. Yeah. So we knew that 1,000 degrees Celsius was too hot because we don't see melt <laughs> in the breaches, right? Okay. They're, they're rock that's been sort of baked and then new minerals have formed in that, um, we call it like a subsolidus process. So everything takes place in the solid state. Um, and so, yeah, the, what we found is that the lower temperature conditions were producing the, the minerals. Okay. Wow. Good that's, to know. Yeah, yeah I was really like, awesome. what do you mean they come out of the oven? Yeah, <laughs> we take them out in their little crucibles and we unwrap them like a Christmas present. It's very exciting. That's that's going to be the new the new uh, geo toy of 2022 mm-hmm. is an easy bake oven for for minerals for little mm-hmm. little geologists and you know those stone things like you used to get like uh, there's these kits you can get of like different stone minerals mm-hmm. that you like chip open and they have like different things inside them. Yep. I always liked those as a kid, <laughs> and the dinosaur ones too. I, I mean, who? Geolo- yeah, who the doesn't? Yeah, the dig one. Like collecting sparkly minerals <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. I do have a rock collection as an adult that I add to every summer. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so, um, what was what's it like to see young geologists building off your work, and, in experiments that are like the first of their kind, uh, within the earth and science community? Like yeah. that must be pretty cool. It's really rewarding for sure. I mean. You know, because a lot of the time you'll meet students, but they kind of come and go during their undergrad. And because we don't have a graduate program at McEwen, you don't see students for long term like they do their undergrad. And you might work with them very closely doing a lot of um, undergraduate research, but then they'll move on to a career or if they go to graduate studies, they go to another university. And so it's really rewarding to be able to, you know, mentor these students for longer periods of time to really see um, the the growth growth in their their knowledge over time so it's it's one of the most rewarding parts of of my job I bet yeah Uh, before I just before I move on I really should give a shout out to Dr. Cliff Shaw who is Haley's co-supervisor and so it's Cliff was actually um on my supervisory committee for my PhD. Oh my goodness. And so, yeah, so it's really cool. Now we're co-supervising Haley's project. So he, he is the one that built, um, the lab at the university of New Brunswick that Haley now lives in. And he, he's helped design a lot of the experiments. And then because we've been doing this collaborative work during a pandemic, I haven't been able to travel there to be as interactive with that aspect of the project as I would have liked. Um, and so really Haley and I, what we're doing together is we're um, uh, describing the samples, like we call it a, a run product. <laughs> so that run product is what comes out of the furnace at the end of the six months. That's really amazing. It's like three generations of geologists and it really is a testament to in real time, like how science works and how you build off the work of others and the mentorship that goes into it. And yes. I think that that's really wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this kind of segues perfectly into the next project we wanted to talk about because it is, again, another project with a student. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Tatiana Mialovich is another undergraduate student, um, and she's also doing some really interesting work. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, well, like Haley, I met Tatiana, you know, in an undergraduate in an undergraduate course at McEwen. Um, this one was a second year course that I teach called Geology of the Solar System, and. I just, I remember her coming up after a class and just saying like, I want to be a planetary scientist and like, can I do it? Is there research at McEwen? You know, are there careers in Canada? And the answer was yes. Yeah. There's myself and um, some of my colleagues who do, you know, planetary sciences studies. And so that, um, that experience as an undergrad research really helps you to segue into to graduate studies in, in Tatiana's case. And so um, lots of people don't know, but we have a meteorite collection at McEwen. We do. Um, we do. Yes, we have over 20 individual specimens. Uh, we have rocks that come from our moon. We have rocks that come from Mars, from the asteroid belt, and then also Vesta, which we'll talk about after. Perfect. Um, and so one of these rocks, which was um, purchased by Dr. Rob Hiltz, who is also in the physical sciences department, it was unclassified. Um, and so to classify a rock, you need to describe the minerals in them, their composition, and then you need to do a bit more detailed studies by looking at like the oxygen isotopes in the sample. And so for her undergrad project, Tatiana classified um, this lunar meteorite, and then we submitted it for review by a committee under the Meteoritical Society, and then it got accepted as an official lunar meteorite, and then it now has a name. And so that was her undergraduate project. What's the name? Right. I'm like, I should have fact-checked before that because it's not a very inspiring name. <laughs> so it's uh, NWA, which stands for Northwest Africa, because it was found in the Saharan Desert. And then it has a number that's sort of an identifier for meteorites found in that year. So I believe it's 10414, but I would have to double-check on that because there are literally like thousands of Northwest Africa meteorites. Okay, we yeah. will follow up on that, <laughs> yes. and we will put the yeah. <laughs> actual name of the meteorite in the episode description. Excellent. So that, um, so yeah, so she did this, you know, incredible undergraduate research here at McEwen, and started a master's project co-supervised between myself and Dr. Chris Hurd, who was my postdoc supervisor um, at the University of Alberta. So Tatiana's project is also looking at lunar meteorites. So they're meteorites that come from the moon. And what she's studying is this um, term that you mentioned when you were introducing me, shock metamorphism. So to metamorphose, like metamorph is to change, and to shock metamorphose is to change a rock by increasing the temperature and pressure almost instantaneously. And that, that shock means that the rock behaves very differently than it would in a normal geological environment where we kind of change temperature and pressure over, over long periods, like deep time, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. We're talking about like the people who pretend to take like a, a a lit piece of charcoal and dip it in peanut butter and it comes out as a diamond, right? Like it's it's like the compression yes. and like trying to synthesize um, like people who are trying to synthesize making diamonds and stuff like that. Yeah. So shock, well, 
Yeah, there are impact craters that have diamonds in them. Um, Papa, the Papagai crater in Russia is the one really good example that I can think of where diamonds are actually mined from the crater. So in that process of shock metamorphism, you create very high temperature and pressure conditions, but they don't. it doesn't last long. It only lasts for a fraction of a second. So that's the whole shock process. Yeah, of course. And so we have... Lots of different samples from the moon. We have samples that were returned by the Apollo astronauts and also uh, the Luna astronauts. And then we have meteorites that are delivered through this process of impact cratering, right? So we have asteroids or meteoroids hitting the surface of the moon, creating a crater, but also kicking off rocks in that process. And so she is studying how rocks are shocked or changed in that process of impact ejection from the moon. And what the overarching goal is to try and pinpoint the location on the moon's surface where the meteorites came from. So by studying shock, we can constrain things like pressure and temperature and time, which in turn will tell us about the size of the crater that was made. And then we have all of these satellites orbiting the moon that tell us about the composition of rocks on the surface. So we combine the information from satellites, so composition, and crater size to try and say where they came from. So she's basically, in very simple terms, trying to match the meteor to the crater or yes. the meteorite. Yes. Um, is this something that is like a common process like of finding out where a meteorite might have come from um well it's common in my research because <laughs> that's always <laughs> sort of been um the goal so that's something I've also done in studying Martian meteorites um we're trying to find um the location on the surface of Mars where they came from by matching up um the age of rock units, the composition of rock units, and then dynamics of the crater. So I had another uh, co-supervised student, Jarrett Hamilton, who worked with um, Dr. Hurd and myself, but he was looking at meteorites from Mars, and Tatiana is doing the same type of work, but from the moon. And so her, her project is funded by the CSA LEAP grant. Okay. I mean, that's got to be a lot more difficult for Mars, because I imagine there's less information maybe about or, I mean, have we been to Mars enough times to know we've exactly what? We've what's... been to Mars a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's actually easier on Mars because there's fewer craters because oh. Mars is is a planet. And, and so it's a lot more dynamic than the moon. Like we had, you know, we we know that there were one, once glaciers on Mars and rivers that flowed on the surface. And it has huge volcanoes. And so it also has an atmosphere. And so these processes act to erase impact craters and create new crust over time. And so there's, there's still a lot of impact craters on the moon, but a lot of them are concentrated on the, the southern hemisphere of that planet, which is the older part of the planet. And most Martian meteorites are quite young on the order of, you know, a few hundred million years, which, I mean, it seems old, but in geological terms, that's quite young. Okay. So... Where is this project? Like, is it still underway? Like, has she matched any meteorites? Like, what's what's going on in the here and now? Right. Well, like most projects over the last two years, there have been significant delays um, because of obviously the pandemic goes without saying, <laughs> um, just in, you know, in getting samples. And so it took us a while to kind of amass 
a large inventory of lunar meteorites for her to study. And so right now she's just wrapping up that descriptive part of her project where she's describing shock metamorphism as the way that the minerals are deformed and also you generate melt. And then from that melt, new minerals crystallize. And so she's characterizing those new minerals that crystallize. And so she's coming up with a series of um, parameters that constrain pressure, temperature, time. And then we'll move into looking at what pressure, temperature, time tells us about the size of the crater. And then she'll look at the remote sensing data. So ideally, she'll be wrapping up this project in the fall. Okay. Well, we'll definitely keep in touch and let us know how that goes. Definitely. I can't believe that the impact of the, the impact of the impact, <laughs> um, but like, it's really incredible to me. I had no idea that when a meteorite or an asteroid impacts a planet or a moon, that it's so forceful that it actually shoots stuff back off into space. And that's how, meteorite or meteors mm -hmm. are formed yeah they are, so that's, that's how meteorites like, are delivered to earth yeah yeah so they're just like a thing is hitting a planet out there and then that's bouncing off here and then coming over here and i was always so worried about like a big meteor like the you know the one kilometer 25 kilometer mm -hmm. meteors Armageddon. <laughs> Armageddon. Yeah. Like, even if they just, like, hit our planet enough that it just kind of, like, shifts us into, like, a different orbit. <laughs> like, how awful that would be if we, or if, if we all of a sudden just got really hot or really cold. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, a lot of it is the damage that's done by, like, tsunamis and wildfire as these, you know, shards of molten rock are falling back through our atmosphere and the shockwave. And there's lots of devastation that can be done by these. The it's, it's amazing that nothing that bad has happened it's only to, 22 in, or 2022 yeah, don't so uh, say anything yet it's already we, we need another major <laughs> historical yeah. event bad, for next bad year. things happen in threes and yeah. you know we're we're going on world war three so that's the third one yeah so <laughs> anyways we're not going to talk about that mentioned that um what you're doing and what tatiana do, is doing um and the other student sorry what was his name again um jared hamilton Jarrett Hamilton, um, is common in your research, but I'm like in the broader community. Um, how many people within the community are, are trying to match these asteroids or meteorites to their origin? Right. Place? Well, there, there are a few other groups, but I would say it's a, ha a handful of researchers in okay. the world. Yeah. So this whole process by which planetary bodies in our solar system exchange material that's sort of the overarching theme in my in my research and so i'm just looking at material that comes from different places in our solar system like our moon like mars and the asteroid belt and the asteroid belt is where four vesta is the asteroid belt is where four vesta is. okay well maybe we'll take a little break before we come back and talk about four vesta and anything else Okay, we are back, and we are headed to the asteroid belt, or field. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Um, so, we can't go without talking about Four Vesta. Um, so, can you explain to us and the listener, what is Four Vesta? Where is Four Vesta? Um, tell us all about it. All right. So, we have... 
small rocks orbiting the sun called meteoroids, larger rocks are called asteroids, and the majority of asteroids are concentrated in what's called the main belt, and that's between Mars and Jupiter. And so Vesta is the second largest asteroid in the main belt, just behind Ceres, which is actually a dwarf planet. Oh. Um, yes. So Vesta is an asteroid, meaning that it, it's um, its surface is kind of irregular. It's not large enough to have been rounded by its own gravity. Um, it's about 525 kilometers diameter, and it is uh, differentiated. So differentiation is a process that our Earth underwent, that, you know, our moon underwent, that other planets are in our solar system underwent. And so it basically just describes that when they're first forming, they are hot enough so that the rocks in them can separate according to their different physical and chemical properties. So you have iron nickel metal that segregates into the core, right? We all know that the earth has a core, you know, an inner solid core, an outer liquid core, and it's made of an iron nickel metal. Uh, we have an outer mantle, and then we have a thin layer at the surface called a crust. Mm -hmm. And so the process of forming those internal layers is called differentiation. And so Vesta, unlike a lot of other asteroids in the main belt, is differentiated. And so I am, became involved in a project looking at meteorites from Vesta, and so these are called HEDs, which stands for Howardite, Eucrites, Diogenites. And then each of those terms is just used to describe a different composition of rock. And so in our collection at McEwen, uh, we had a couple HED meteorites. And one of them, I noticed, had these thin black lines that were cutting across the stone. And so that immediately made me think of my work that I've done on lunar and Martian materials where, you know, I mentioned that shock, this shock metamorphism can deform minerals, yeah. but it can also generate melt. And when that melt forms, it forms quickly and it cools quickly. And so it's a lot of glass and small minerals and that causes the melt to look black when you look at a chunk of the rock. And so I thought, oh, there's these black veins in this meteorite and they look like shock melt and then I started looking in the literature and there wasn't a lot of work done on shock metamorphism in HED meteorites and in there's has been a lot of interest in the planetary science community about this specific asteroid because a mission called the Dawn mission actually went to Vesta. And so it reached Vesta, Vesta in uh, 2011. It orbited around Vesta and it collected information about the surface composition. And so by collecting information about the types of rock on the surface, we were able to match HED meteorites to that asteroid. And so we can say these, you know, we have these different lines of evidence. And so these meteorites are most likely derived from Vesta. Okay. So is that like, like obsidian is black? Yes. I was going to just say obsidian. I was like, oh, a, a, a black, black rock must be obsidian. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> is that like, what makes it black is it the the chemical composition of the rock before it melts or is it just by virtue of the process and the shock it's a combination of two things so one is um 
the glass, they're often quite glassy. And we know like from looking at obsidian that um, when you melt rock and create a, a glass, it can be black, but also the minerals in it are really, really small. And so they're on the order of, you know, nanometer scales, right? So we're talking very, very small. And if you have a whole bunch of tiny minerals all stacked against, against each other, they block out light. And so that makes them look black. Okay. Yeah. But whenever you kind of polish them and create this really thin, we call it a thin section, um, what you'll find is that those shock veins will often transmit light. It's just that they're thicker in the main rock. So why hasn't Fort Vesta crashed into Earth yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um, probably really far away. Yeah. yeah. And okay. it's in a stable orbit around yeah. the sun. Yeah. You need something to kind of jar it out of that order, orbit, right? Like a collision event to, to bring it out of that stable orbit and kind of bring it in an orbit like this where it's going to get swept, where it can, could get swept up by the Earth. I'm surprised. Like, I'm so surprised all of our planets just haven't at one point in time just <laughs> had a group party and just been like, you know what? This is our time. And Well, we in the just... beginning, didn't they like start as a party? Yeah, yeah. Apart. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of um, evidence now to suggest that the outer gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn were once much closer to the sun, but they, their position has migrated um, through time. But that's, that's for the... Um, astrophysicists uh, yes yeah. uh, 100% <laughs> that's definitely I know nothing of my, about yeah. any of this stuff so it's very interesting to but me to, to learn about it yeah yeah so with Fort Vesta um how old are the meteorites and the pieces that you've studied that have come off for that have come off for Vesta because I'm just kind of curious as to you know in the asteroid belt, are we continuing to see, you know, pieces of it kind of chip off and float to Earth? Or is this, are these remnants pieces of kind of older shifting times in space where things are a little bit more chaotic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, so one part to unpack all, all of those questions. So one part is looking at the age of Vestin rocks and they they are ancient. Um, so on the order of, you know, around 4 billion years old. And so that tells us that this process of differentiation happened um, very quickly um, because the ages that come from those rocks are, are kind of dating the time that they formed as, like the, a lot of them are sort of basalts, like the type of rock you might find on like Hawaii or they're kind of rocks that cool a little more slowly below the Earth's surface. And so by getting the age of those, it tells us what the timing of those igneous processes on, on Vesta. And so it, it was quite ancient. Um, then there's another branch of, so we call the dating of rocks geochronology. And so there's another branch that's looking at trying to date the timing of these impact events um, that excavated huge basins on Vesta and then also sent, there's a class of asteroids that are related to Vesta. They're called Vestoids. Oh. Uh, and they're in orbit also in the asteroid belt, like with Vesta. And we think during the formation of these huge impact basins, like one of them is like 
is uh, takes up almost the entire hemisphere of the asteroid that it excavated you know huge portions of the mantle and crust and now we have these family of asteroids that were kind of um liberated from Vesta that are now related related to it like little baby like little babies <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, but probably still quite large yes <laughs> yeah but it is quite difficult to um like geochronology is very complex and it is quite difficult to unravel all the different ages that we get from different minerals like there's different chronometers or ways of of dating different minerals and so I don't think we have a really good um handle on when the impact events that created the shock metamorphism that changed the rocks actually happened and that's where I'm hoping my research leads me to okay mm-hmm. well that's very exciting um so before we move on is there anything important that we should know about for vesta and its little vestoids and <laughs> the belt uh, well, I guess it's important that it's my favorite asteroid. Yeah. Okay. That is <laughs> very important. And I mean, theoretically, you are building potentially into a new body of research. Yes. Yes. It. Yeah. Trying to fa- figure out what the timing of these impact events. And actually, I'm presenting this data for the first time uh, next week. Oh, at, awesome. Uh, but it's it's virtually again. It is a hybrid conference, but I decided not to go. But it's at the uh, 53rd Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, which is in Houston. And so I'll be presenting this um, data that I've, I've collected over the past few years on this one specific diogenite in our collection, which is another Northwest Africa. But I know the number of this one. Oh. It's Northwest Africa 10268. 1026. <laughs> Six, eight. I mean, I think it's really incredible. You're presenting this for the first time coming up here right away. And it sounds like it was something where you were just looking at it and being like, hmm, these are cool. These are cool. (laughs) What's that little line and, you know, how it can blossom into now a future avenue for interesting research on your favorite asteroids. So congratulations on that. (laughs) Moving on. Um... This podcast is part of the series we're doing for McEwen's Month of Scholarship. Um, So we want to talk to you a little bit about your experience as a previous Board of Governors Chair. So can you tell us a little bit about the experience and how the appointment um, helped you grow your research program? Yeah, so the Board of Governors Research Chair um, sits in that position for two years and so I really viewed it as sort of two years where I had time or the luxury to explore these, uh, you know, areas of research that just kind of pop up through these experiences like, hey, look, that rock is green. I wonder what it's made of. Or, hey, look, this meteorite has shock veins or things that look like shock veins in it. Maybe I'll study that. And so I had the time to kind of explore all these avenues of research and also to put together grants, which is, you know, it's a really time-consuming process. Like yeah. I forget the the page count on our CSA LEAP grant, but it was you know, I would say upwards of 50 pages, you know, oh, putting wow. these proposals together. And so you just have time to conduct research, to think about research, to put together proposals, to get funding that will then, you know, give you the opportunities to support students, to carry out, um, you know, these types of research projects. And so 
Yeah, it was. That sounds very... really important to for for the university. You know, yes. they're, they're I think they're investing, you know, that time to get back, you know, that that research from. You know, they're they're putting in the time to allow you to make our university shine and like create projects that are really. I think would really benefit our our research and scholarly activity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the undergrad students that I had when I you know first tenured the board of governors chair have continued on to do graduate studies with me, and so yeah, so I think that really speaks to the the success of the the program and how important it is not only for myself and growing my program, but to students at McEwen by you know enabling me to foster undergraduate research that can giving you the time to do that for Mm -hmm. sure and do those like future generations like maybe you know your students like Tatiana Haley like you may be supervising them supervising yes exactly (laughs) maybe we'll be co-supervising students and Mm -hmm. I I just have another McEwen grad graduate uh, Radhika Saini I'm probably pronouncing her last name incorrectly but she just started um, a master's with Dr. Hurd and I at the U of A too and so I kind of have this um, history of sort of cultivating undergraduate research here and then you know having those students progress into um, more sophisticated research they're your projects. vestoids yes they're my vestoids <laughs> oh. you know it really amazes me on the amount of research that's being done at this university on such a large scale you know I had no idea people in our institution were studying space and and things like that. Like that's pretty huge working with with um our Canada NASA. Yeah, yeah. Our Canada NASA. Our yeah. Canada NASA. Yeah. That's what the, they should just change their name to Canasa. But I think, you know, research is it's applied learning, you know, yeah. it's, and so it's where you're able to take what you learn in the courses and apl- apply that to a project and you know, not only do you get to be involved in, you know, the design of a project, but you get experience in, you know, um, science dissemination and communicating science um, and also in, you know, these writing skills and these translate into, um, you know, having a, a well-rounded CV for, you know, your next step when you leave McEwen uh, as, you know, in your chosen career or to graduate studies. And so, yeah, I think this whole culture of undergraduate research is is unique to McEwen is something that makes us stand out a hundred percent like uh I I'm a student researcher as well and like nobody in my program I come from the music department and it's very very rare we see students in a undergraduate setting uh, especially in a music program wanting to pursue research instead of just focusing on their craft and mm-hmm. and becoming you know better at what they do right um kind of segueing moving moving on like um i'm just gonna ask before we before we kind of wrap this this podcast up it's been really great having you um but i want to hear if you have anything uh coming up any plan anything planned beyond your uh for vesta project uh right so the next the next phase is in that one specific project is or after like anything after that too right um, so I think I'm just continuing to, you know, meteorites are my jam. That's like, that's the bread and butter <laughs> of my research program. But I also am really interested now in terrestrial impact structures through looking at Steen River. Um, and so I would like to look at other impact craters. Uh, one of the grants I have, um, um, the discovery grant through the NSERC program, um, I proposed to 
try and look for other buried impact craters in Alberta. And so, like I was talking about before, we have oil and gas activity here, which means that lots of drilling happens and the products of that drilling are made available publicly through these two core facilities in Calgary and Edmonton. And so what I would like to do is to look at combined, so geophysics looks at sending seismic waves, like pressure waves, below the earth and looking at how they bounce off rock layers to build kind of a three-dimensional structure below the earth. And so these um, can act to identify other buried impact craters by their morphology, by their shape. And so the shape is not enough to say that that crater formed by collision of an asteroid or Mm -hmm. meteoroid, you need to have identify shock metamorphic effects in the rocks. So it would combine searching for these unknown buried craters in Alberta, looking at little chips of rock or core that's brought up to the surface and looking for shock metamorphic effects. So just to try and build the um, inventory of known craters in this province. And then like with anything, who knows where that research leads me to. Maybe we find another crater and maybe there's core from it and maybe I look at that or maybe I start looking at impact craters and, you know, in different locations. And so that's so interesting. My friend uh, and bandmate, uh, works as a geologist for oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And so it's really cool that there's probably like a ton of data yes. because of how much we've invested in our oil and gas industry in Alberta, um, how much data we have gotten from those um, geologists studying the, the doing doing those, uh, what did you call them, the, the pulses into the ground? Yeah, seismic waves. Seismic yeah. waves into the ground. So um, maybe that is a Good that we have all that ec- extra information <laughs> yeah. from from that yeah, absolutely. to help you with your studies as if well. If you got it, might as well use, might as well it. use yeah. it. Yeah, even if it wasn't <laughs> intended to be used that way, <laughs> yeah, save well, some money. <laughs> a lot of impact craters are um, important economically. Like I mentioned, Papagai is mined for diamonds. The Sudbury impact structure in Ontario is mined for you know its nickel deposits. Um, we have Steen River is. Um, an oil and gas producer in the rim of the structure. And so there is also an economic incentive to find other craters because they can be traps for mineralization or oil and gas migration. So hopefully more meteors hit the earth and we get more (laughs) diamonds. Or more more funding goes into identifying these buried craters for science. Literal, you are literally uh, hunting for treasure. I am, yeah, literally, yeah. <laughs> so we are at the end of our time, um, but the very last thing is, I do like to ask: Do you have any recommendations for other researchers in your field, um, especially those kind of student researchers, and anyone who's interested in studying geology and meteoritics? Like what? What are your words of wisdom for the for the vestoids out there yeah. looking to kind of, you know, break out on the scene? Yeah. Um, well, I think just um, knowledge that there are careers in almost anything you can think of out there. And for me, that was um, my lack of knowledge of the diversity of careers, you know, specifically, I, I think, to women in science was inhibited me like I you know I didn't know I was kind of 
lost in my undergrad. I didn't know what to take or what to do. And then I, you know, I happened to find geology. And so I think just arming yourself with the knowledge that there's such a diversity of, of careers out there and really encouraging students to, to speak to faculty at McEwen because we do have so much um, specifically undergraduate concentrated research. There's so many opportunities at McEwen um, for students to to learn more about, you know, a specific area in their degree program. And, you know, like with scientific discovery, you never know where it's going to going to leave you, lead you, <laughs> lead you and leave you, lead you. and yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, it has been a pleasure. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to keep on digging into today's episode, please follow up with the links in the episode description to learn more. If you think this podcast rocks, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to catch new episodes every two weeks. Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Art and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave, with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. 